Welcome back to the Siwan Project, the podcast that accompanies Siwan's third studio album, Hafla. سأقنع منك بلحظ البصر وأرضى بتسليمك المختصر ولا أتخطى التماس المنى ولا أتعدى اختلاس النظر whenever darkness falls the night I see contains a secret best if the heavens felt this love I feel for you the sun would not shine nor the moon rise nor would the stars launch out upon their journey. In this episode, we hear from Professor Raymond Farron. I think poetry had pride of place in terms of the arts. Arab culture started out in the Arabian Peninsula as a, I mean, rich Bedouin heritage, which was based on an oral culture. Dr. Fitzroy Morrissey. It's been described by Ray Scheindlin, who's one of the great scholars of medieval Arabic literature, as the chief aesthetic experience of an entire civilization, and I think that's right. And Professor Amira Benison. You have to think of poetry as being a bit like a newspaper today. Poetry was used in numerous different contexts. And I think, you know, although literacies reasonably good a lot of people are illiterate and the way you transmit information quickly is a couplet because people can memorize it it's memorable and they can recite it to the next person so even with a longer poem you might get the best couplets circulating much more widely we're looking at how important poetry was in al-andalus a time period that covered almost eight centuries, from 711 to 1492. Raymond helps us to conceptualize this. So for me, it helps to sort of split it up into three stages. And you could say the first stage till about 1000 was really the building. It was of a, a state in Al-Andalus, an Umayyad state, and then a caliphate. And culturally, they were really playing catch-up to the east at the time. Initially, it was just an outlying region from the capital of Damascus. And then Damascus fell and Baghdad became the capital of the world. And the writers and the poets of Al-Andalus were really looking to the east. I mean, poetry had started in the Arabian Peninsula and Arabic culture was, you know, that was the center. So in fact, Ibn Abd Rabbihi in the 10th century sends this compilation of poetry to the east and trying to get their recognition, like, look, we've studied your works, we've come up to your level, and we're even starting to produce some of our own great poetry over here. And it was a return to them, basically said, we're, you know, we're interested, we got a book from El Andalus, and we really want to know about your poetry, but it's all filled with poetry of the East, which we're very familiar with here in Baghdad. So there was a little bit of an inferiority complex, I think, culturally, initially, but really the second stage, probably about 1000 to 1248 to the fall of Seville, is really the golden period when culturally the Andalus had caught up very much with the East and they're producing striking works. They're very original and different and in many ways surpassing the great works of Baghdad and Damascus. So this is the time of Ibn Zaydun, Wallada, and uh, Ibn Hazm. And then Seville uh, fell, and actually most of the Andalusian cities fell to the Christians, the Reconquista, except for Granada, or Granada in the south. And it was really surprising how long it held on. 
for another about 250 years. So this is sort of like the third stage where you have a small city-state in the south and still producing great poetry. And of course, this is when the Alhambra Palace was built. So this is kind of the last great stage of, of a smaller segment in the south of Al-Andalus. Aside religion and, you know, talking about the Quran, that has a very special place, of course. But as far as the culture and letters, I think poetry had pride of place in terms of the arts. And this really goes back because the Arab culture started out in the Arabian Peninsula as a, I mean, rich Bedouin heritage, which was based on an oral culture. And they, it was not material culture that you, the Bedouins uh, valued lightness, something you could easily transport from camp to camp and removing. So we don't, we're not making heavy objects or paintings, this sort of thing. But poetry was really the art par excellence, and then that continued. It's part of the, the elite would memorize the poetry, they would study the poetry and recite it. If you were at all educated, you would have studied all the great poets going back to the pre-Islamic era up till the present, and you would try to contribute to that rich tradition. We should bear in mind that other arts as well as cultural and scientific endeavors were important too. If you talk about Al-Andalus particularly, an architecture, the great mosque of Cordoba, a great, huge achievement, and started with Abdurrahman, the first, the Adakha, the, uh, the one who entered Al-Andalus, and then completed later by his great-grandson. Also, you had Medina de Zahra, a royal suburb outside of Cordoba. There was also just a splendid city that still visited today, the ruins are. This is music. Ziria came over from Baghdad and really innovated in Andalus. And there was a rich tradition of music and singing. And a lot of times the love poetry was sung. So there's overlap there. In the sciences, there were great advances in technology. For example, uh, Zahrawi. Zahrawi was a great doctor in Cordoba. And he was not only trying out new techniques, and writing about his practice of medicine, but he was that these books were studied in Europe, but he was also sort of inventing or creating his making his own medical instruments, his own tools. So really, I mean, arts were flourishing in religious sciences at the time. Al Andalus became a center for religious study of the Quran. Besides Ibn Hazm Adani, uh, who was from Cordoba, uh, studied the various verse numbering systems of the Quran. So these many different aspects, cultural aspects were flourishing. It was a rich period. But again, because Arabic culture, I think poetry is really central. And to this day, as an art form, going back to the very beginning, the pre-Islamic heritage, when a poet really, he was the one who defended your reputation, the tribe, and he would sing its exploits. So he was like the spokesperson for the tribe and criticize the others, other tribes and satirize. So they, poets really had a special place. Poetry was more than just a hobby. It was a skill that had to be learned. It was definitely a skill that was cultivated by the elite and it required a lot of skill. I mean, you had to study the language and know the, the grammar very well and also the heritage and poets, in order to compose poetry, both improvising or writing it down, it was expected that you would first start out and study the masters and memorize all these old poems. And then once you mastered the forms and the genres, then you could contribute your own works and try to innovate within those bounds. So poetry was very much an art of the elite, and it held an important place in court. But... At the same time, there are examples 
of people of social mobility through poetry. Like in the East, in Damascus, uh, Abu Tamam, his father was a weaver, had a small weaving shop outside Damascus. And so a very modest background, but he did extremely well for himself through poetry, through praising the elite, the caliphs, and his ministers made a lot of money. The best example is the great poet of the East, Al-Mutanebbi. His father in Kufa, in Iraq, was a water carrier. So he would take buckets to the river, collect water, and then bring this water to the houses of the wealthy and then get a little payment for that. Very, very modest job he had. And Mutanebbi, his son, became one of the great rich people of his time through visiting the courts, praising the princes, and but just through amazingly powerful and beautiful poetry. And he's rewarded tremendously. It was an opportunity for people to climb and get access to the court if you had literary talent, if you had time to study the poetry. Raymond shares an example from Al-Andalus. Walada, Bintan Mustekfi, the great princess, took under her wing a woman by the name Muhja Bintan Tiyani, and her father was a fig seller. But she saw talent in her and taught her poetry, and she, you know, had access and could recite her poetry at court. Walada herself was also a great poet, and some of her work is featured in Siwan's music. We'll explore her further in the second part of this episode. So, even though this was an art of the elite, and a difficult one to master, if you had talent and the opportunity and time to study, poetry could be an avenue into the court. However, even before Al-Andalus came into existence, poetry was always important in society. Raymond explains. From the pre-Islamic period, you have praise poetry, and first you, it start out, you praised your tribe, and then it becomes after, as with the spread of the Islamic civilization, you praise the leader for money or the princes, so panegyric, and it's opposite satire. Before Islam used to satirize the other tribes because you were proud of your tribe, you were from the best tribe, and they none of them compared to you, and you wanted to put them in their place. This became a way to, if you had enemies in court, you could destroy someone's reputation if you belittled them with especially powerful or memorable verse. You have Elegy, El Khansa before Islam, a great poet of uh, for her two brothers. And Elegy, a lot was a, uh, area, a genre for the women poets to sort of celebrate the great men of the tribe. It then broadens, and many, all the poets, I mean, if a family member or a friend or a relative of the emir or the prince dies, it's expected that you would memorialize her. And it's just like praise, but of course the person has died, you're re- recalling their great qualities. Also, another genre, uh, descriptive poetry. And in El Andalus, it really took on a special form, sort of mixing descriptive poetry and elegy. And they became famous for the laments for cities, for fallen cities. And the best example is a poet called Arundi in 1248. He writes a poem about the fall of Seville and the succession of cities before that. There were Cordoba and Jayan fell to the Christian advance from the north. He writes about the sadness and how even in the mosque, the minbar is weeping and all these mosques have been converted into churches and really pulls, tugs at the heartstrings. And he also describes um, the slaves being taken or boys being taken away, young boys being taken away from their mothers or young girls being taken away to the slave market, really affecting scenes. And the end, 
he's really, it's a call to arms. And he, this poem was sent to North Africa, to Egypt, and it was really trying to instigate or inspire the people or a call for help to have them come to Al-Andalus and protect and take back these cities, take back this land. So this lament for fallen cities is a special type of descriptive poetry that is famous in Al-Andalus. And of course, love poetry. The poet, if you fell in love with someone from another tribe, you're expected to, you know, describe her beauty. And because marriage was supposed to take place within the tribe, often you had young people from different tribes falling in love with each other during the spring when various tribes would camp close to each other because there was enough herbage and rain that they could support grazing of multiple tribes in the same area. And there were actually months of peace when warfare, intertribal warfare was suspended. So you had these short-term relationships that would form between people of different tribes. But inevitably, when the hot season came in April, the tribe had to go back to its water source. And the parents, the family, would never allow their daughters or their sons to intermarry. There are not a lot of records or admissions of children being born. At least I haven't seen that. But often the poets will boast. And it's usually the young men talking because there probably was poetry that the women composed from the pre-Islamic poetry, but very little has come down to it because it seems like the tribes didn't want to record this and preserve it. It was, they were, you know, they didn't want to mention it. But often the young men would boast that they would march into her tribe and she would sort of be reluctant, but he'd convince her and they'd walk out uh, into the dunes and spend the night together talking and that sort of thing. And then, you know, just before dawn, come back. So... They would record these sort of exploits and they were always very short term, like one or two months. And inevitably at the end, he's talking about seeing her go away with her tribe and maybe she looks back at him and doesn't say anything. But it's a very sad moment because in all likelihood, I mean, they knew these relationships were not going to be fruitful unless they ran off together, which I think was unheard of because you live within your tribe. They were short-term relationships that came to an inevitably were going to come to an end. And in all likelihood, they would never see each other again. It would be a pure stroke of luck. The two tribes camped together in another season. Or maybe she's married by then and he's married. So these were sort of young romances that were, yeah, sadly ended. But they still, they, they knew that and still they seemed to happen anyway. This was very much forbidden love. And it seems like the listeners maybe had gone through similar experiences. I mean, they probably enjoyed hearing it and vicariously sort of living the experience through the poetry. And women w were more sort of obliquely. There, is, there are some lines, but usually they're more sort of oblique, like a woman, she yearns for this particular place or this valley and the, you know, the memory's there and she doesn't say exactly what she's talking about, but it's probably some person there that she got to know. You know, her heart aches for that place and it's probably more than just the place. It was during the Umayyad dynasty in Al-Andalus where poetry flourished. Fitzroy explains. Poetry has had a very important significance throughout Andalusian history, going back, right back to the arrival of the Umayyad dynasty in Al-Andalus in the mid-8th century. The first Umayyad ruler of Al-Andalus, Abdurrahman I, he has a very famous poem in which he compares himself to a palm tree which he's brought from his native Syria to Al-Andalus. Both he and the palm tree are in exile far from their native land. And this really sets a pattern for later rulers 
of Al-Andalus, Abdurrahman's Umayyad successors. So his grandson Al-Hakam I is also a poet and Al-Hakam's son Abdurrahman, also called Abdurrahman, was a great patron of literature and learning. Perhaps the cultural and political high point of the Umayyad dynasty, however, is the long reign of Abdurrahman III in the early to mid 10th century. Abdurrahman was a great patron of literateurs and scholars. He also expanded the great mosque at Cordoba. His dynasty was fabulously wealthy. His treasury is said to have contained 20 million gold pieces, making him the wealthiest uh, ruler in the Muslim world at that time. And this is really a cultural high point which continues under the reign of his son and successor, Al-Hakam II, who we're told in the sources commissioned the importing of scientific and philosophical and literary works from the Middle East to Al-Andalus and had a massive royal library of said to have contained 400,000 books. It said that at one point there were too many books in his library for the library to house them all and so they had to move the library and it took five days to move the books of poetry alone. So this suggests that poetry had a very high significance. What's interesting is that the role and status of poetry continues after the demise of the Umayyad dynasty in the early 11th century. So at that time, Al-Andalus becomes politically fragmented into dozens of small principalities known as Ta'ifa kingdoms. So on the one hand, you have this political fragmentation. On the other, this really is the golden age of Arabic poetry in Al-Andalus. And it's during this period, the Ta'ifa period, when you get uh, such great poets as Ibn Zaydun or Ibn Shuhayd working and plying their trade at the various courts which have, have sprung up across Al-Andalus. There's a relationship that's particularly interesting during this period, and that is the one between religion and poetry. As is well known, Al-Andalus is a multi-religious society. Of course, one has the Muslim ruling majority, but at the same time there's a large population of Jews and Christians living under Muslim rule. And often we see that these non-Muslim individuals playing a major role in the political and cultural life of Al-Andalus. There are a number of famous Jewish viziers who play an important role in the political realm. And Christians also appear in the sources as physicians, as traders. In terms of the non-Muslim contribution to poetry, the, what's interesting is that in Al-Andalus almost coincides with the golden age of Hebrew poetry emanating from Islamic Spain. Another interesting thing is the way in which Arabic poets use the language of religion in their poems. So one of the characteristic features of Andalusian Arabic poetry is the way in which the bond between the lover 
and the beloved is often described in religious terms as a religious bond. And so one might say that for these poets use the language of religion to create a higher kind of poetic religion. Andalusian poetry echoes the Arabic poetry of the Muslim world in many respects, but one of the interesting areas where it seems to be somewhat distinct is in the way in which Andalusian poets often portray or describe their own experiences and emotions in a strikingly direct and relatively unstylized way. One of the interesting things about Andalusian Arabic poetry is this direct window which it gives us into the poet's soul, one might say, and this I think is one of the reasons for its enduring appeal. Let's explore some of the different forms of Arabic poetry. There are various different forms of classical Arabic poetry. The most famous is the Qasida, and this is a relatively long mono-rhyming poem, so every line ends with the same rhyme. So Ibn Zaydun's Nuniya ends, each line ends in the letter Nun, or in the uh, sound Ina. The Muasha is a poem which has an end couplet in colloquial or a vernacular. And it's been argued that it may have influenced troubadour poetry or vice versa. So that's a very sort of interesting phenomenon which is distinctive to the Iberian Peninsula. As for the genres, something already touched upon earlier in the episode is a category of poetry called praise poetry. Where a poet tries to earn some money by being extremely flattering to whoever's in control, whether it's a ruler, a governor, a ruler's representative of some kind. So this is sort of the praise poetry category. But then there's also sort of nature poetry and celebration of the experience of, of nature and gardens and flowers and so on. Then there's sort of the model following on from the classical Arabic qasida, which sort of runs through the process of love and following one's beloved and losing one's beloved and so on and so forth. So there's a whole sort of range of different uses of poetry. One of the ones I find most interesting actually is satirical poetry, or what's called hijab, where you might just write a really rude couplet and just try to get it circulated as widely as possible. And more than one poet had to go, well, I wouldn't necessarily call it exile, but had to leave a city quite quickly <laughs> due to a satirical couplet. And um, an example I often use with my students, because it's so lively, is uh, there was a siege of Granada during the late 9th century. The two sides were sort of at each other's throats. So there's a military besieging force and there's a, a besieged army inside a fortress. And rather than just fighting, they also fling rude poems backwards and forwards, wrapped around stones. So that's kind of the role of poetry, you know? You know, you, <laughs> you want to say something insulting, you like, like, you fling it onto the other army, you know? You're all a load of donkeys or something. 
We know now how important poetry was during this period, how it was used as a form of cultural capital that facilitated social mobility, and a few different forms and genres it came in. We'll leave the first part of this episode with a mirror touching upon the musicality of poetry and the Arabic language in general. Arabic is a very patterned language. So when you recite poetry, it's very, the musicality is outstanding. So it has this lovely flow and sense of rhythm. The sounds repeat and match each other. It is a poetic language. Poetry would often be sung. So, poetry and music are not entirely distinct forms in the medieval Islamic peninsula. It's perfectly normal to sing as well as recite a poem, and music would have been part of the salons. It would have been very much part of culture. Obviously, there are, you know, distinctive instruments that we're aware of from the Middle East generally, like the oud or the the lute. It was a very musical society. I mean, even if you listen to recitation of the Qur'an, it's not seen as music, but it is musical. It has a flow and pattern. It's very sonorous. beautiful. So people were very fond, as far as I can tell, of having music in their lives. And it would have been present at courts, it would probably be present in other settings as well. We, we don't really know very much, unfortunately, about sort of public performance, and whether you, you would have anything sort of akin to a concert. But you, you certainly had storytelling sessions sort of throughout society, as well as the recitation of poetry. So it's in, entirely conceivable that m- music would have been a big part of life in the peninsula. Certainly at court level, a lot of the concubines were specifically trained in singing and music, often in Medina, which was, had a, I wouldn't, wouldn't, necessarily call it a school but it had a very strong tradition of training singers and musicians who would then come back or be purchased or moved around the Islamic world we're talking about slave women here so yeah so a strong musical tradition That's it for this first part of the episode. You heard the voices of Professor Raymond Farron from the American University of Kuwait, Dr Fitzroy Morrissey from the University of Oxford, and Professor Amira Benison from the University of Cambridge, as well as me, Emily Naylor. Join us next time to learn more about the verses that are used in Siwan's music, and the poets themselves who wrote them. Thanks for listening.